Welcome to a Script to Screen workshop podcast. Script to Screen is a charitable organisation developing the craft and culture of storytelling for the screen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In May 2021, Script to Screen partnered with the Aotearoa Screen Publicists Collective to present the A to Z of screen publicity wānanga. The aim of the workshop was to show the many ways screen publicists can work alongside creatives to ensure their stories are discovered and watched by their target audiences. The sessions were recorded and this is one of 10 that you can listen to. Each session has its own whakatauki befitting the theme of the discussion. No te raudau, naku te raudau, ka ora te manuhiri. We give to satisfy guests. Welcome to Embracing the Meme. In this session, publicist Tamar Munch investigates the importance of engaging with fans with writer, actor and Wellington paranormal showrunner Paul Yates and Sasha Judd, director of Hoku Group and internationally recognised fan expert. So we are talking today about fans and fandom. Um, Paul is, uh, what's your, what's your creator, showrunner of Wellington Paranormal? What are you, what's, what's your title? Um, I have a few hats, but uh, I guess um, showrunner, producer and co-creator with um, Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. There you go. And Sasha comes to us from outside of the screen industry, but with um, extensive experience in the being world of fan. fan. Yeah, being <laughs> a fan and the world of fandom. Is that what we would say? Yeah, I think so. Over the last few years, I've spent quite a lot of time writing and speaking and thinking about fans and fandom, particularly on the transformative fandom side, so people who are involved in creating fan works, fan fiction, fan art, that sort of thing. There we go. So um, I think... I'd quite like to try and keep the session practical, you know, as opposed to to theoretical. But I think it's important to kind of start off with a little, um, maybe a definition and um, a, a an understanding of of what is a fan and why why should um, this is going to throw at you, Sasha? Why should content creators uh, desire to have fans and engage with them? Uh, because we want people watching our stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, I think I think one of the things that um, draws me to fandom is the passion of um, communities that form around creative works. And I think people really desire to spend time with other people who care about the things that they love. And that can be everything from a sports team to a hobby to a TV show or a book or a movie that you enjoy. And we want that sense of belonging and we want to be alongside people who like the same things that we do. And so um, if we're lucky enough to be creators, then we really want to encourage the formation of those communities. I have, just through doing publicity, obviously you work on stuff and there are lots of fans. So I sort of have um, experience in that world. And I think my observation of it is there's a, there's a, it's a, it's a love relationship. Like if you really engage with fans, they, they love your product and there has to be some degree of reciprocity that, that you're, you're giving back to them beyond or, um, Maybe not beyond, but in addition, yeah, in addition to the content itself. Um, so you can create the content, but I think the real love affair starts when you engage with them beyond that. And um, I have random motorway thoughts. Chris knows about my random motorway thoughts. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's a guy, Gary Chapman, and he wrote the love languages. There's five love languages about... Um, how how people 
engage in a relationship, like, you know, what what is important to them. So I thought that could provide a bit of a map for us to talk about different ways that um, content creators can engage with fans. So the first, um, uh, first love language is words of affirmation. And in a relationship context, that is encouragement, affirmations, appreciations, um, listening actively. And I think in the content space, that applies to your social media and um, also applies to word of mouth. So I, if we unpack the idea of social media, maybe in the first instance, and Sasha, you play around in some interesting spaces. So obviously, um, you guys had that session yesterday around social media and there was a lot of discussion um, around choosing platforms and things like that. So, you know, beyond your Facebooks and your Instagrams, do you want to just talk a little bit about the the places where... Fans where also. Fans are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I feel a bit unqualified in the sense that I'm an old lady of fandom, so I've I've been through so many different platforms now. Right back, I started my fandom life on mailing lists. I've been on Live Journal. I've been on Tumblr. Um, I've definitely spent most of my life on Twitter. Um, I've seen the the progression over the last couple of years to draw back into more private communities. So I'm in fandom slacks and discords and those sorts of more intentional spaces. Um, um, and and so that can be quite a challenge. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the ding ding. Ding ding is if, um, ding ding is if uh, the word is a little bit jargony or needs some clarification. So maybe the Slack and the Discord is. Oh, uh, so uh, some of you may use Slack at work. It's a workplace communication tool for um, sort of live chatting in the workplace. Discord is a free version of the same thing, which is being used by. Um, gamers a lot of the time, but now more by social communities and so on. Uh, and so it's a place to set up a community where people can join and chat to each other and they can organise themselves in channels to talk about particular topics and so on. Um, and, and I think that um, we're seeing increasingly fandom spaces finding some of the limitations of open Slava platforms where anyone can kind of come for you um, and creating some more not private, I mean, you know, it's open for anyone who's into to join, but but more intentional spaces where they can chat about the things they're into. Awesome. Um, and Paul, I might get you to, to chime in here, just in terms of a practical, from a, from a content creator point of view, the practical um, side of running your own social media and what, what have you done for Wellington Paranormal, what have you found works and what have you found doesn't? Right. Well, it was a. It's been a steep learning curve for me <clears throat> as someone who's old uh, to, you know, plan a social media strategy for our show from the ground up. Initially, when um, uh, Wellington Paranormal launched, um, our social media was was um, uh, tended by uh, TVNZ. And that was sort of the plan, and they have a marketing team in place. And so initially, that was that was uh, what we proceeded with. They created a um, a Facebook page for us called Wellington Paranormal Citizens Brigade, and they kind of looked after that. And um, that's where, in after watching some of that, I felt we needed to take that over, or I personally needed to take it over. Um, which is nothing against the people that that looked after it. Um, our show is very much about comedic content and so really the creative needs to come from us and so that was you know that was um a discovery for me um so i basically took over the um uh 
the Facebook page. I would write posts. I would put media on that. I'd put clips. And so being old, Facebook was my space initially. Um, Jermaine Clement, um, is he lives on Twitter. I think he spends more time on Twitter than anything else. Um, and he has about half a million followers. So that was a really useful tool for us that he would tweet about the show. He would put clips on from the show. And so really that was that was kind of our strategy. We didn't go into it with a plan. Um, it just kind of happened organically. So at this stage, that's what we've been doing. And um, so far it's kind of working, but what I found once the show, to our delight and surprise, sold internationally in the last kind of um, month or so since it's been on air in the UK, um, there's a million fans out there um, for the show and they're kind of more motivated and there's just more of them um, in the UK uh, than there is here. And they all love the show, which is delightful, but they all comment about it. There's been fan art. There's been people creating their own gifts. There's been people creating their own memes. And so our social media and the promotion of it's kind of happened organically, which I, I love. The great thing about fans is that they, they do that. You don't have to do much to entice them to comment on things, to, um, you know, talk about what they love about the show or talk creatively about the show. Um, so that's kind of where we're we're at with the sh with the show um, going into season four. It's the we for example we didn't have our own dedicated Twitter feed for the show. It sort of happened by a fan. So we've started up finally um, a Twitter feed for Wellington Paranormal, and so we're kind of posting every day during the shoot. We're posting cryptic photos about what we're doing each day that doesn't give away too much story, but for fans, it's a it's a space where they can, you know, be intrigued as to what we're going to do. So, um, so really, it's been a voyage of discovery uh, for me and our show, um, and it's also been a learning curve as to, you know, Tamar, you talked about in a practical sense what you need to do. Mm. Um, I think content creators really need to think hard about what their social media strategy is. Um, before they go into production, because um, it is possible for you to create your own content, be it photography, be it, you know, clips, stuff like that. Um, it is important, but you shouldn't do too much of it. I think you can think too hard about social media sometimes. To me, focus on the content. That's what people want to watch. For example, whatever your favorite show might be, um, do you want to engage in the show or do you want to engage in additional content? And I think that's a really important question uh, to ask. You know, if you think about your favourite show, you know, um, to me, it's that's, that's the key thing, is the content. Um, so social media should be something that supports that, encourages it after. Um, and I think that's a conversation you just need to have beforehand to work out what your assets are. Um, once the show's on air and once it goes on a stream or that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at um, in terms of my social media. Um, and one of the questions, I think, for maybe for some of the folks in this room is how, how onerous is it for you as the showrunner, producer, co-creator doing that? I mean, you've basically taken that mantle on yourself. Is it, is it a burden? when you're in the midst of shooting the show or writing the show, et cetera? It can be, um, yeah. It's, um, you know, when you're in production, you've got a whole a million things that you have to kind of um, think about. So um, 
tending your social media is um, is kind of further down the list, and it is important. Um, and I am old, uh, so um, the thing is, um, if you do decide to have someone who tends your social media, that costs. And if you're on a um, a New Zealand on air budget, um, I think it is something you need to consider pairing out budget for. Um, in the future, and certainly in shows I do from now on, I will I will certainly look to do that, and I I know it will be supported by NZ on Air, and there are already shows that I'm involved in that have their social media strategy, um, but I think it's just a conversation you need to have with your publicist pre-production, as opposed to once you've finished your show, it's about to go on air, because then they'll say, oh, have you got this, have you got this, have you got this, because sometimes you just plain don't have it. So it's, you know, I learned how to make memes, um, and I learned how to make, you know, gifts and all those, those sort of little things. Um, so as I say, it's, it's um, in answer to your question, it is an additional thing that I could, I could possibly do without, but I do enjoy doing it. I enjoy writing interesting Facebook posts or cool tweets or find interesting photos around our set and it's not too hard to do um, but yeah it is an additional thing that um, I think in the future you will see shows in production they'll have their EPK team but they'll also have their social media team on set coming up with ideas of how to promote the show in the future. And how much uh, coming back to the fans how much are you listening like how much of the social media chatter that you are paying attention to, do you take on board in terms of the show creation? Uh, certainly read all of it. Um, I love reading the lovely tweets. Um, you know, when your show goes to air as a content creator, you know, in the past, you'd kind of, the show would go on air and you'd go, mm, I hope people like it, and you'd wait for ratings. And in the old days, ratings, as we know, are inherently flawed because you'd get some kind of arbitrary number. And if your show is more you know, catered for a more specific audience, ratings in the old way, the sort of Nielsen ratings aren't really, don't really tell you much. So you don't get much feedback. Um, but now that we have the glorious social media, you can watch a Twitter feed. As, the show, as our show's on air, people start tweeting about it. People going, start quoting the gags. People start going, oh, my God, they did this. Um, and as a content creator, that's just delightful. It's, it's more of an affirmation that the, the gags work when you're a comedy writer, you know, you, you you write gags, you put them on air and you don't know whether people find them funny because there's no audible audience, but on social media there is. And um, so far, you know, our show's not perfect, but um, a lot of people seem to like it. And so fans like to comment on that, and especially genre fans. We've made a show that is both a comedy and it's a genre show. So there's a lot of very smart fans who just love talking about it and love spotting the movie references that we kind of put in as Easter eggs in the show, um, which is delightful. Um, so I think any content you make, think about what the fans are going to dig about it and what they're going to talk about. Um, so, yes, we do listen to them. I won't say that we, we, uh, we've, we've never used someone's idea and put it into a show, but a good example, though, um, in series one, we were looking for writers and we we're always looking for up and coming, new, fresh writers. Um, Jermaine said, um, there's this amazing um, comedian who tweets called Melanie Bracewell. And so I started reading her Twitter feed and it was funny. And so I went along to see her uh, do comedy and did that thing of a producer going up to a comedian after a comedy show and going, um, you're Melanie Bracewell, we really like your stuff. Would you like, like to write this show? Um, and... Yeah, she's been one of our senior writers all the way through. Um, so, yes, if you write something funny on Twitter, it does get noticed. And um, uh, 
you know, she's she's now a writer on the show. So there you go. There's a there's a Twitter success story for you. Awesome, love it. Getting jobs via via social media. Um, you mentioned Easter eggs in there. Do, are you guys? Do we need to explain Easter eggs? Is everybody familiar with? Yes. Uh, uh, do you want to do that, <laughs> expert? Um, an Easter egg is you know it comes from Easter egg hunt. It's it's something that you discover in a property that's been hidden for your delight and surprise. And so it was very common in video games to um, hide something. You know. I don't know, your character's running around an imaginary world and find something hidden behind a tree that unless they're looking, they won't discover it. And in movies and TV, it's often a reference, as, as Paul says, perhaps a reference to a classic film or some other reference that's a, an insider reference that your passionate fans will be delighted by. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for instance, is always hiding Easter eggs for its most dedicated fans. Um, and so in my Love Languages framework... One of the other love languages is, is receiving gifts. So for some people in relationships, that's very important. Um, and for me, I would throw Easter eggs into that category, that, that, that that's a gift that the content creators are giving to their fans. Some of the other things that, um, that might be considered gifts, are also um, fan art. So that's go, coming the other way where, where the fans are generating um, content inspired by. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of that, um, I think, the hockey stuff? Because just the ice hockey. Oh, um, just because it's so unexpected. I'm, I love that story. I, I think you're talking about the difference between transformative and yes. curatorial fandom. Yes. So so when we talk about fandom, um, it, it loosely falls into two kinds. We talk about curatorial fandom and transformative fandom. And this is, I mean, fandom academics, of which I am not one, would... I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so curatorial fans are fans who prize knowing the most facts. And so if you think of your archetypal nerdy sports fan, the one who knows all of the starting lineups for the All Blacks for the last 20 seasons, the ones who can tell you the home and away stats, who know every coach, know every assistant coach, that sort of fandom um, prizes or values knowing the most information about a topic. Transformative fans are fans who are more interested in creating things out of um, what they're seeing on the screen or in the book. And so they're the ones who are more interested in the stories in the cracks, the what-ifs. It's like, what if this character did this other thing? What if this character was a person of colour and not white? What if this character was queer? What would happen after this story ends? What happens when they, um, you know, leave the White House? What happens after Harry Potter defeats Voldemort, whatever that sort of aspect is. And transformative fans are interested in telling those stories and they might tell them through writing fan fiction, they might do it through fan art um, or other kinds of creative means. So that's what we talk about transformative fandom is, is that sort of work. And so when we think about things that um, fans make, like fan art, fan merchandise, fan fiction, that's often in the transformative side rather than the curatorial side. And... How do you court, how do, or can you give us some examples of, of where content creators have 
courted or responded well to that kind of transformative fandom? Yeah, I mean, it's been a real shift, right? Like, I mean, when I started out in fandom, you wanted to keep it incredibly secret from creators because creators wanted to shut it down. And there were a few very sort of epic battles. Anne Rice, who wrote the interview with the vampire novels, she was the main one who really came hard, sued fans, didn't want them writing stories about her characters, didn't want any of that going on online. Um, And so it was very much an activity that sort of happened in secret. Um, It's become more and more mainstream, and I think it still butts up against some of the large corporate entities who are still not that cool with Mm. you, you know, making T-shirts with Star Wars characters and so on on them. But in general, I think most creators now want to encourage it. Mm. They feel a bit conflicted about it. Like I was interested in hearing Paul saying when you were asking about, um, you know, do you take on board ideas um, that come from social media? And I've seen authors particularly say, don't send me your stories. Don't send me your headcanons about what you think the characters are going to do next. Because if I see them, I'm in legal trouble. You know, like I'm going to write the sequel to the story and you're going to come and say, you stole my idea because I tweeted you about it. Right. So, so there's still like a real kind of tension, I think, there between creators and fans. But increasingly, you're seeing corporate properties um, pick up fan art and competitions and reshare it online. Um, Hulu did a big promotion for The Handmaid's Tale a couple of years ago, which was um, posting fan art on Tumblr. And it was the first time I'd ever seen actual ads. Like, they were Hulu ads on Tumblr being reblogged by Tumblr users because they were fan art. They looked beautiful. They were created by the people of that community. Um, And again, attention there, because I don't think those fans were paid for their art. (laughs) So there's this sort of, oh, we're going to have this competition. Free creative for the network. We're going to have this competition and you'll send us your amazing art and we'll pick some of it to share. And it's like, well, that's all well and good, but that's someone's creative endeavour that they've spent time on and you haven't paid an artist to go and create the stuff. So there's, there's lots of kind of back and forth there. But, um, yeah. Um, and the other sort of category, I guess, that falls into the, re- the, the gift, the receiving and giving gifts aspect is also merchandise. Um, and uh, it's the one thing I stuffed up this morning with a stack sitting by the front door, and of course I left it there. there you've got a stack. Um, traditionally in New Zealand, I would say that we haven't been very good at doing merchandise, and that's really because the funding isn't there. Like you actually, to create a piece of something, whether it's a T-shirt or a drink bottle, there has to be an outlay. You know, you've got to design it, you've got to get the stock, etc. Um, and probably Shortland Street is is the only place where that's really existed over any period of time. Um, very early on when I was there, there were <laughs> collector cards, literal collector cards with the characters on them and you could go to Video Easy and get them signed. We did uh, signings with actors um, when there were video stores. Can you even imagine? So, you know, there has been moments where um, in the history of that show where there's been been, uh, merch. But I'm interested just to hear from you because you've got some thoughts around um, what fans are wanting out of merchandise these days as opposed to, you know, it used to be that you might get a logo on a T-shirt, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it comes back to Easter eggs, really. It's like Mm. people want to um, express their belonging in a community and that's an insider reference. So they don't really want to walk around with a T-shirt with the, you know, Friends TV show logo on it. But they want to signal that they're part of it. I did bring a bag of merch, so I'm just going to make a point here. She followed instruction. Yeah, I've got all (laughs) kinds of different merch, like my Taylor Swift cardigan cardigan. 
Um, but the one I wanted to show you was this one. This is actually fan-made merch. See, see who's first to recognise this hoodie. So on the front, for those of you who can't read this far, it says Adler High Lacrosse. And then if you turn it around. <laughs> what, what is it? No, no, not Team Wolf. To all the boys I've loved before. Yeah, it's Peter Kavinsky's Adler High Lacrosse hoodie. So this, this is the sort of thing I'm talking about, right? Like this is a fictional character, dreamboat, teen um, <laughs> rom-com, huge hit on Netflix, um, series of books before that. Uh, and this is the, the lead character. And he wears this hoodie a lot in the movie. Now, the movie didn't make this. This is fan-made, bought it on Redbubble. But, you know, when you wander around wearing like Kavinsky's lacrosse hoodie, like there's only a certain category of people who are going to, catch that, and that's that sort of in-group feeling that you get from great merch, I think. But yeah, like, it's, that sort of, it's that sort of Easter egg feeling, like um, that's um, an Avengers time heist hoodie, so from the last movie, ah. where they wear these quantum suits. Um, but you know, like I was wearing that at Comic-Con in New York and Seth Green went, is that a time heist hoodie? And I was like, oh my God, yes, and you're Seth Green. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's that, it's that insider feeling. Anyway, that's all. Um, have you guys done anything, have you, have you stepped into this area at all, Paul? No. Again, that would, would fall to me. It's something we certainly intend to do now that we've got sort of a market. Um, New Zealand, I think, is a relatively small market. So for the, for the effort it takes to create, you know, unique T-shirts, um, it's, it's something we plan to do once the show kind of goes further out. Um, internationally, um, we do we do crew shirt. Last year we did crew shirts, where the crew could pick their favourite um, catchphrase from the show. So there are crew members out there with like, "Stop that! It's a bit scary." Uh, <laughs> on a t-shirt. Um, or this is certainly not optimal. Um, so that's that's a fun thing that we're we're thinking we might might give people the option to buy um, online. Um, police hats. We do we do the our, we've got a unique police logo and stuff. So we've certainly got plans. And, and our show is uh, certainly marketable in that way in terms of clothing. Um, I've seen some fan-made stuff. Um, after the last Armageddon, someone posted a picture of what looked to be very authentic um, Minogan O'Leary bobbleheads. Um, and so I very politely DM'd the person that had posted and said, is this a real thing? But no, of course, it's a, it was fan-made. But it looked like a perfectly, looked like a toy company had made it. Um, but fans had, you know, they they'd created this amazing, you know, had the box and the logo and the whole the whole thing. Um, so fans are certainly dedicated, and if there if there isn't the merch, then they'll make it themselves. Yeah, they will. And I think as creators, um, I don't think people should be freaked out by that. I think you can have official merch and you can encourage fan creation, and those things can coexist. And a great example I've seen of that is the author Rainbow Rowell, who um, wrote a series of books about um, a magical school, which is like Harry Potter, but not for complicated reasons. Um, and she, her, her fans had spent years making merch about the Watford Academy that these kids went to um, because there wasn't official merch. And then she came out with her own line. She commissioned an artist to, to design it. And all she said at the time when she launched it was, I'm totally happy with you continuing to make your own stuff. Don't copy these designs. Like, these are the official... Watford ones. If you want these, buy them from me. The artist gets paid. I get paid. That's a win-win-win. You can all still make your own stuff. Just don't rip these ones off. And her, I think her community responded quite well to that. So I don't think you should see it as a binary. It's like you can encourage fan creation without feeling like, well, I've got to earn, you know, be the one with the merge. 
I, I, I was just about to tell a story about IP. So if, um, those of you who are familiar with Outrageous Fortune, there were uh, mantra... IP, intellectual property. So it's, um, yeah. Uh, in Outrageous Fortune, there were... Van and Manta, uh, uh, I think season three, became the tall guys and one wore a T-shirt that said tall and the other one wore a T-shirt that said guys. We did a bunch of... Um, uh, uh, of t we, we did a bunch of merch for Outrageous, actually, and um, including T-shirts and including tall and guys. We did a design which was tall and guys. W what was interesting about that is that the band Tool had an issue with us selling T-shirts that said tall, even though... Because that was a, we were we were selling those t-shirts as a standalone, and we we were like, well, what if we sell them as a pair? You know, all that kind of thing, um, and we couldn't quite get around it. So we actually ended up having to put guys on the back, which kind of sucked because it wasn't like it was from the show. People still liked it, but um, so there are. You, you do need to, if you're selling your stuff as a content creator, I mean, this was through South, South Pacific Pictures, there's a lawyer who's very by the book. You don't get, you're not going to do anything that's not not by the rules. And so, we, you know, she didn't want to get sued by tools. So, um, so, so you have to look out for other people's IP. But in terms of, um, I mean, I think, Sasha, to, you know, you, you, it, are you talking about, Jackie, when somebody... Um, is profiting off your owned content? Yes, exactly. Um, I know ABC TV in Australia go a bit far with this, but, you know, grannies were knitting um, children's clothes with logos from their ABC shows, which were very popular, and they shut it down. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, that's the extreme, it, it, um, yeah. but it is an issue with people taking people's IP and making money from it for themselves. So I just was curious about that from the fandom point of view. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for years I think the the mantra in fandom was that no one made money off it, you know, like fan fiction and fan art was freely created and freely shared. And the internet creating the ability to do print on demand, which let people do T-shirts and water bottles and merch and stuff, shifted that quite a lot. Um, but I don't really see a problem with that. I, and I mean, I'm not a content creator, so it's, you know, this is my personal bias. Someone who's selling a few T-shirts on Redbubble is making chump change, and I just don't think, as creators, we, we need to be coming for them. Um, it's, it's maybe different if somebody is setting up some sort of massive commercial mm. operation off the back of your property, and obviously then your lawyers would have words to say about it, but I, I just think a few fan T-shirts out in the world that are selling the song of the thing that you've made to people who love it is... I think that's wonderful. And and I think uh, in my time that the attitude of broadcasters in particular and, and potentially film distributors but or, or studios rather, the, the content owners, has changed a lot. So I think my experience comes from band tour T-shirts where it was a major problem where you yeah. had to be vigilant all the time and I think it's quite different in the screen industry. But I was just curious about it. Thank you. That was a good answer. Um, th th definitely, though, even in the sort of fan website blog space, TVNZ, 2005, 2006, there was a website called Idol Blog, which was a blog, like fan blog for New Zealand Idol. Can you believe it? And they, you know, it was a really well-loved 
show and lots of people were talking about it. They would dissect all of the, you know, songs and contestants and da-da-da. They would also, you know, it was pre-social media, so it was also I saw so-and-so at the dairy and, you know, it was that type of stuff. Um, TVNZ came down really, really, really hard. They hated it because they wanted all of the conversation to be happening on their official site. So it's, this is not a merchandise conversation, but they really tried to shut them down. And I... That was in year one uh, of the show, I think, 2004. I came back from Australia in 2005 and I was like, why are you being like this? And we ended up actually inviting those, the people that ran the blog site to the shows twice a week so that they could live blog, for, you know, or, or actually they were pre-recorded. One of the shows was pre-recorded. But that meant that they were actually, they had access. They could talk to the eliminated contestant. It changed the whole tone of the relationship. And I think that... That that's indicative of the change in the relationship that's happened in the last probably 15, 20 years. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think too, um, I, I'm a recovering lawyer, so I can say this, you have to be a little bit careful with um, legal input on some of these things because lawyers are trained to say, this is a breach of your intellectual property rights. You shouldn't let this happen. Um, and, you know, you need to, I, I think you need to keep the lawyers on a leash a little bit because sometimes it is a mutually rewarding thing to let this stuff happen. And I assume we've got some, is there some sort of Chatham House rule yeah. going on here? Um, and Gemma, block your ears. But in the in the early days of um, Letterboxd, the film review site, I was the lawyer for that site at the time. And I kept saying to the guys who, run it, I was like, you don't have the rights to use any of these film posters. Like, what are you doing? Like, these film studios are going to say, you can't just build a site and put all of our assets on it. Like, that's outrageous. And the owners were like, but we're great for the studios. Like, this is absolutely fantastic for them. We've got this vibrant community of people talking about their films. And the only time a studio is going to say, take our poster down off your site, is if our community is saying, your film is terrible. <laughs> like, that's, that's not going to happen. Like, it's a mutual win. And it's I'll just follow, I'll follow that up by saying what's happening now is that we get A24 in our inbox going, uh, can you swap that poster out for this one? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's a classic example of a lawyer, me, in that case, going, mm, I don't think you should do that. You don't have the rights to do that. And, um, and the owners of Letterboxd correctly going, this is a win for everyone. You know, it's a win for the fans, it's a win for the films, it's a win for the studios, and they were right and I was wrong. Um, you mentioned Comic-Con, and that sort of comes under... Um, so physical touch is another one of the love languages. And so... Um, I didn't touch anyone at Comic-Con. <laughs> no, I'm not suggesting that. But there is a there is a getting out into the world and actually meeting your fans in person, right? So that's a that's a that's an opportunity for content creators and for talent. I mean, when you have really rabid fans... You could be, you know, you could be sending character number 50 and they will still get excited. Yeah. Comic-Con was wildly mind-opening for me because it is not the way I have ever done fandom. I'm an online fangirl and um, I only went, not last year, last year disappeared in a blur, the year before uh, in New York because a good friend of mine, um, Adam Savage, is a mad cosplayer and he gets like super, super into cosplay. And um, like, Do we need to define cosplay? Cosplay is when you dress up as your favourite character um, and go somewhere. Or you don't even have to go somewhere. You just post cool pictures of yourself dressed up as the character on Instagram. Uh, and but, but cosplaying at conventions is a big thing. I, I hate dressing up. I 
loathe Halloween. I'm not into costumes. This is like my worst nightmare. Uh, and Adam was like, let's go to Comic-Con in New York together and cosplay. You can cosplay for the first time. And I was like, what? Um, but I did it. Uh, I wrote about it on the spin-off. if you want to see me dressed as um, an angel interceptor pilot from Captain Scarlet. Um, and, and so that was my first experience. And it was pretty overwhelming because it is a very different kind of fandom. You know, people queue for hours just to have a photo with their favourite star or to get their autograph, two things which I just, I, can't, I don't want to meet my heroes. Like, God, I can't think of anything worse than encountering Harry Styles on the street. Like, what a nightmare. So, um, so, so it's, a, it's a very different kind of fandom. But, um, but yeah, desperate for, again, that insider piece. So, like, one of the things that just blew my mind was people would they'd have to book an appointment and they would queue for a Funko Pop, you know, those weird little vinyl, I shouldn't call them weird, delightful little vinyl dolls that was only going to be available at Comic-Con. So that sort of in, insider access and, and uh, a special. And I suppose the, the big one um, in San Diego is always getting into Hall H and seeing the, the trailers for the new properties or whatever for the first time. It's that sort of insider piece again. First look stuff. Yeah. And Paul, Karen and Mike, uh, I think, are probably a great example of of this in New Zealand because that the cops turn up to stuff. And I think you also had that in the UK, was it, as well? Yeah, we. Um, I went over with the cops to a horror festival over in England um, a couple of years ago. And we sort of make, well, it's not a rule, but it's. I think it's because our cops feel so uniquely real and are funniest when they are the cops. Um, I discourage them from, you know, doing interviews as Karen O'Leary and Mike Minogue talking about their characters. It's kind of more fun for the fans if they um, turn up in character and they are uniquely gifted at staying in character the whole time. That's the whole reason we built a show around them is that they can just talk in those in those characters. So um, they're great for places like Armageddon and the stuff that we went to in England because they just mingle and they can be cops and they're eye-catching because they're police officers and, you know, that's, that's kind of funny. Um, so uh, we're, we're just like that we have two actors that can improvise in character, and it's it's more fun for the for the fans going to going to um, things like Armageddon than than just a panel. Panels are great, but you, sometimes those panels have been to them and. They're a little bit boring sometimes, you know, the actors talking about their character and what they did. And you can tell the actors that have done a lot of them because they know good anecdotes to tell and they can make them fun. But with Karen and Mike, they can just sit there and be funny and stay in character and fans get a much more, you know, kind of direct involvement in the show and they get a photo with a cop and, you know, and, and Karen and Mike just stay in character the whole time and they're super funny. Um, one of the other love languages is... Um Quality time, and this is um, so. There are things like um, watch parties, and um, that kind of live Q and A, live chat on social, and things like that, where it is that kind of more um, additional. You know, it is additional quality time. Um, I know Creamery did watch parties. Do you want to speak to this? Because yeah. the, the reason I'm talking about this, and I think it's really relevant for local content creators and, and local publicists and stuff, because it's it's actually a cheap way yeah. to engage with fans. It's you don't right. have to produce anything. Exactly. And what we actually did, so for the first episode, I got... Um, Roseanne and JJ, who's sitting right here, and all the <laughs> the flat three girls to um, 
across their own socials while I was managing the official ones, posting anecdotes, posting pictures as things were happening. And people were just like, it, you know, we, that night, I think, Sophie, you said you felt like everyone in New Zealand was talking about Creamery on Twitter. It was awesome. And then from then on, what, we're, what we've done is we're getting each Monday when it plays out on normal TV, um, we're getting someone else to take over our socials. So we actually had Karen O'Leary, who I just text and said, have you watched Creamery? <laughs> she said, no, but I'm going to tonight. I was like, perfect. Um, and she ended up, you know, pouring a bottle of cream over herself on our social media. Um, <laughs> We've got, um, we did a special director's edition where Roseanne did it and she smashed it. It was amazing. So she was giving all of these, she was dropping all of the, because the great thing about the Creamery Girls, they all took a lot of their own photos, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So that when I came on, they had this amazing folder of hilarious 600 photos. Yeah, yeah which was awesome. And on Monday, we've got James Roquet doing it. And then the Monday after, we've got Chris Parker. And then we've got Brindley Stent doing it on the last episode. Are they just doing it for love? Just doing it for love. Mm. And, like, I mean, I will say it's because James, like, Karen, James, Chris are all people I know and just text them. And it's it's been hard because they're doing it for love because then you get people pulling out and, like, yeah. But But you can also do that, obviously, with, you know, the people from within the the show you can do it with um we we used to do it with uh shorty and also outrageous and almighty johnson's almighty johnson's was a show that because of the genre um and it and it sold quite well internationally and james griffin used to do um twitter like he'd go on twitter and answer questions and stuff like that it's a it's a it's a very rewarding also for the show, especially for showrunners, I think. Um, it's also a way, I think, to be quite authentic with your connection yeah. to fans. Like something Paul said earlier about like um, making gifts and having all of those assets ready, but not doing too much. And it's like, what you don't want to do like, is just sort of dump a whole bunch of gifts on your show's website and say, hey, here's the stuff, guys. Mm. But like, I remember watching um, when the new version of Queer Eye first dropped and I was watching an episode of that and tweeting about it and the Fab Five had some outrageous reaction to something that had happened and, you know, JVN's legs are up in the air on the couch and, you know, they're all squealing and screaming. And I tweeted something like, I'm, I'm going to need a gif of that reaction pronto because I want to use it over and over. Like, it was just a, a silly tweet. And the Queer Eye Twitter came straight back and went, I got you, girl, and there were like four gifts attached to it of this particular moment in the show. And it's kind of, I mean, obviously they've got the budget to have someone sitting there watching all of the socials to do that, but but it was quite an authentic way to start those gifts out in the world and sharing them and people using them for reaction shots and whatever. I'll just, yeah, quickly on the gift thing. Giphy is an underrated tool that for, um, in Australia, we, with uh, World People and Breaker Upper is, uh, I was working with Madman and you just, you can get a branded channel, you email their partnership, there's a form on there and you make sure you tag it up and people can search your gifts on Twitter and on Instagram. It's something that is low cost. You do have to make the gifts, but I mean, honestly, for Cremery, it is me sitting there on my laptop, cutting it, giving it, it's, it's, not, it's not too hard. And to your point about replying to people, on Twitter when someone says, I loved that scene on Creamery, and if I reply with a gift, they just, I love it. I love it. I mean, one of the most successful shows I think that's done that is probably Shit's Creek, the Shit's Creek gift set, which has such a strong visual identity, and it is just everywhere. Mm. And, I mean, that's that's something that's been phenomenally successful. Yeah, gifts. Gifts are gifts. Are, gifts, are gifts. Um, authenticity, I think, um, something that... that three of you have now mentioned, and I think um, 
Paul, you, we talked about this briefly the other day, um, just in terms of having having that authentic voice of the characters and for the show across all media and, and all, you know, all socials, but also out in the world, promos and all that sort of thing. Do you want to just um, talk us through a little bit? And, and this is possibly, I'll preface this by saying this might slightly contrast with what Ruben talked about yesterday, Ruben from TVNZ Marketing, but I think it's interesting to hear from a content creator's point of view, showrunner's point of view, um, the, the process around something like promos for your show. Do you want to just tell us about that experience? Um, yeah, so so you'll have your content uh, ready to go and um, the network will then promo it. Um, and sometimes you don't dig the promos. So you have to... Um, I, 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 you know, I, I had to tell my um, network last time that very thing. They had um, made a promo. They'd done a voiceover that was trying to be kind of in the voice of the show, and um, it wasn't created by us. And it was tr it was sort of trying to be funny. And and I just basically said, "Look, I'm sorry, I don't dig this. Could we change it?" And I had a suggestion for our for the promos that basically they just use clips from the show. If there's one thing that sells the show best, rather than quick, huge montage of shots from your show, our show, the comedy comes from you know, stillness, really, you know, there's, there's like nice, funny bits with our guys. So if you're going to get people to watch a show, show those, you know, just take a clip from the show and turn that into a promo so that people will get a laugh. You know, they don't have to see multiple montages of shots with a fake voiceover. So um, in answer to your question, it's just a case of being sort of honest with your network as to what you want to do. Mm. Um in season one, um, they put a lot of marketing into our show because it was a big new show and all that kind of stuff. And and there was more of a cordero between me and the marketing team as to what we did. They initially said, um, we've got these great ideas for promos. Can we have two days out of your schedule to make them? Um, and I had to say, no, you cannot have two days out of our schedule to make promos. Um, so um, in, in the end, we, we on a Saturday morning during the shoot, I got a skeleton crew. I wrote the promos. Um, one of the marketing people um, came down. Um, Matthew Hart, and we, we created unique promos for season one, um, episodics and stuff, and that was a much more rewarding process. We controlled the creative on it. I'd like to think they were kind of funnier. Um, so I think it's just a case of if you're creating something, just talk to your marketing people at your network and say, well, this is kind of like what we'd like to do. Um, and, I, and that goes right through everything we're talking about today through social media. Have that conversation so that it's not sort of taken over. You know, sometimes networks will get an advertising agency to do your marketing and so you have no control over what might be on the billboard um, or even know about it until you see it. Um, and I think if you're creating the content, you're supposedly, especially in comedy, you know, the funny people making the show, surely you would ask the content creators to create something funny to promote your show. Um, so I think it's just a case of honesty. Right up front, talk to your network and say, this, what are your ideas? Let's let's come up with something. And and TVNZ, to be absolutely fair, came up with a genius marketing idea, which was um, a series of posters uh, for season two, which during the day was just our cops, but at night there was like a UV light, 
and it would illuminate it and you'd see a whole lot of kind of creature hands come around. Really simple at one big marketing award overseas and was was really cool. Um, so, yeah, as I say, it's just a case of opening up channels of communication and making sure your network and your creators are on are on board together to, to promote your show pretty much. And you're kind of the guardian of it, right? So because you're... It, 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 the fans will read the the when something is not authentic. The fans will know, and 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 there's a. I think what's interesting with Wellington Paranormal and and Paul just alluded to it there, is that and it's it's often the case you make especially when you're making series TV or se- even web series. Hopefully, you want to make it again. I mean, I know that limited series these days are a bit of a thing. You know, like a five or seven episode um, one off, but. Uh, serial television, if you're doing it well, you get to make another one, another one, another one up until a certain point and you can become, that then grows your audience and your fandom and so the responsibility to then service the fans grows in accordance with that and what I think is interesting in Paul's case and that's worth mentioning because it's sort of what we're here talking about is that the network um, marketing and promo support didn't increase as the series went on. In fact, it actually decreases. So that kind of caught you out a little bit, didn't it? Um, it sort of did. And, I, and and this is not a sort of blame thing. It was just um, TVNZ had, had quite seriously reduced their kind of um, marketing department. And, and also the other point was... Oh, well, at Series 3, um, you guys are already an established brand. You know, you can kind of look after yourselves a little bit. Um, so there was kind of a disconnect in that regard. Um, although I was sort of forewarned about it, um, it would have been nice to know because we could have tried to find time to create our own um, gallery of um, promotional pictures, a um, whole range of assets we could have made had we had the time. And it sort of caught us on the hop a little when we went to sell internationally. Um, they were like, where's your season three assets? And we're like, we don't have many. You'll just have to take what we have. So, for example, poster campaigns, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, partly naivety on my part, but, um, but yeah, um, we, we just lacked a little bit of that. So, for season four, we've parted out a day and budget um, in order to film unique promos, to do full gallery of photos with all four lead characters so that we have those assets um, when we when we sell season four to the world. So this question is now uh, about a few eight, questions uh, five minutes old. Um, there is a, a really a beautiful sentence um, that I want to ask you about. Uh, it was, and I said no. And so I'm just wondering, is, is that like... In terms of the relationship, you know, between you as the show creator and you know the the network, is that like a negotiated no, or or do you have that power? Um, can you just talk more about that, like, and I said no, and how that works? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, Max. Um, they they certainly sent me the promos, and um, I'm pretty sure they they send you them anyway. They you know you sort of say, hey, what's the promo campaign coming up? Um, how are you going to launch the show? And so initially, uh, that's where my concern was raised, that there wasn't a big, huge promo campaign. They were just really going to do kind of, you know, cuts from the show. So I said, I'd, you know, really like to see those. And I'm pretty sure they do send send you them anyway. Um, and when I saw it, I didn't like it. And I simply expressed that. And um, 
they were very understanding and said, okay, well, what do you think? Um, and I suggested ideas of how maybe to to do a promo that, that works for the show better. And they were really responsive. You know, TVNZ weren't like, oh, you can't tell us to do that. They do respect the fact that you're the content creator and, you know, you're the kind of marshal of all things to do with your show. So I was respected. I said, no, could we do something different? And they listened. So I don't know any other anecdotal evidence of any other people doing that, but I think... It seems a natural thing to do if you don't like something. If, if someone's promoting your show in a way that you don't think is cool, absolutely you should be able to say, no, can we do something different, please? I think um, in my experience, uh, certainly the primary broadcasters in New Zealand, as a content creator, you can have those discussions. Whether or not they hit the target, isn't, there's not a 100% strike rate in terms of success of getting them to change their ways. And I think when Ruben sat here yesterday, he said something like, let us market your show along those lines. Like, we know how to do that. So that, that's where the disconnect is because I think the content creator is the guardian of the show for their audience, for the for the characters, for the content of the show and for the fans of, of the show, bringing this back to the fans. Um, the the The... Network is, you know, demographics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It may not be about the fans, um, but like as in speaking authentically to fans of the show. So there's a that's potentially where that disconnect exists. The other thing I think that's interesting is that once your show becomes successful, and Wellington Paranormal is an, an example of this, um, but when you start to sell the show overseas, you have no control over what the network in Germany is doing with your program. You have no... I mean, there was some hilarious stuff for Almighty Johnson. So how do you market that show in Russia? Like, come on. So um, you you do have to relinquish some control, but that's um, that actually what was funny about that was that there was some promotional stuff that amused fans of the show back here, like it sort of it sparks a whole other conversation around what is authentic to the world of the show. You know, but the fans know that stuff. The 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 world of the 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 content world becomes their world. Like, they will become the guardians as much as the content creators, I think. And it sort of goes to your question, Max, a little bit. And it was when I was um, digital commissioner at TVNZ, so I was working on quite... On demand was growing and there was sort of some small-scale content going up exclusively on the platform. And I don't know if any of you know, but there was a show called Alibi that was done by a um, production house called Plus Six for quite an emerging crew into the kind of web series screen space. And it was a show that was, I want to say it was under 500k and TVNZ put a bit of budget into it, but it was kind of considered low scale and it wasn't sort of deemed a priority. And I watched that team kind of clock that quite early and they're really, really creative, they're, they're geniuses and they kind of realised, okay, we're going to have to f figure out how to scramble to get a really great stills photographer on the set. They created the most beautiful visuals of the characters so that and, and then when it was sort of handed to the marketing team, who really it wasn't going to be a priority for them at all, of course they were never going to say no to it. And again, it's not a great example of it, but I remember thinking that kind of hustle was really critical to making that show then kind of sing. So sometimes you have to kind of read the room and the commissioners, I think, to kind of end the content and marketing teams to kind of see if that stuff is happening or to your point, Paul, realising if you'd have known early on you could have done something differently. It's those kind of moments. I just wanted to um, ask you uh, to briefly, if, if you can, uh, talk about maybe some of the, the negative aspects of fandom. Yeah, I think it's important not to be too rose-coloured glasses about this. I mean, I spend a lot of my time um, 
cheering on fans and fandom and talking about how awesome they are, and that's true. But it's not to say that there isn't a massively dark side to fandom and um, toxic fandom is real. And um, there's a lot that you can read if you're into it about how fandom can be a pretty racist environment, particularly online. Um, and how I think increasingly empowered fandoms are starting to sort of place real demands on showrunners about what they want to see happen uh, in the shows. And, you know, the, the worst, best example of that recently would be the Release the Snyder Cut campaign. Um, whatever you think about Zack Snyder and whether he should have been allowed to make Justice League or not, um, the reality is that that Snyder Cut came about because of a massive, very ugly online fandom who um, didn't, want to take no for an answer. Um, and, you know, he got $70 million to make a four-hour movie. So I, I don't know who wins in that scenario. <laughs> uh, so I guess thinking about that from a creator's standpoint is kind of interesting. I think it's important to understand what your fans are saying about your show online and to understand that um, not with a view to constantly responding to it, but to know to know what that conversation is. Because if you're ignorant to it, you can fall into holes without even meaning to. Um, and a great example of, I, I don't know whether they meant to fall in it or not, but the, the sort of classic case study in recent years was The 100, uh, a young adult show in the United States, a sort of sci-fi post-apocalyptic-y show. Uh, and they had a massive online um, following for one of the ships. I guess that's a ding-ding. But uh, in online fandom, you talk about shipping characters, short for relationship. It's that you really like the idea of two characters being together, even if they are not, in fact, together on screen. And there was a very, very prominent um, ship in the 100 fandom. It was a queer ship. It wasn't present on screen. Um, and But fans were super into it, you know, th hundreds of thousands of stories written about these two characters, lots and lots of fan art, all of that stuff. They love these two characters. And um, two things happened in quick succession. The, the showrunners shared behind-the-scenes content um, that revealed one of these two characters um, filming the finale. Um, so it was behind-the-scenes stuff of them making the final episode. And so the online fandom was like, oh, this character, she makes it to the end, right? Like, she, she's clearly there in the last episode because this is footage from the... the um, screening and filming of the final. And then, of course, they brought the two characters together, this, this gay couple. Finally, the two of them have a snog and then one of them immediately dies, which is a classic sort of bury your gaze trope. And so these fans were furious because this relationship that they had wanted um, to see on screen for years uh, finally became a reality and immediately the character who they had been led to believe was going to make it because this actress was in the behind-the-scenes content uh, is killed. So it was like a, a double whammy. Um, and the fans really turned on them, on them, on the showrunners, on the show itself. Mm. Uh, and there's been a few examples of that recently and I don't know how to feel about that, like I don't know what to tell you to feel about mm. that because as showrunners you've got to be true to your vision and to the story that you're telling but I think it is important to understand what your community thinks about your show and what they're excited about and what they believe might be unfolding and to just be mindful of that as you are going about promotion because I think there are some ways that um, 
It's like managing expectations, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you can you can fall into some traps, and um, I don't know. We use the the phrase fan service a lot, and um, you know sometimes I think creative works are written off as being acts of fan service. It's like oh, they only did this because the fans wanted it. You know, they, these characters have only got together because the fans wanted to see it happen, and and so I think. Um, that can feel inauthentic as well. And so it's sort of, I think it's about knowing what's being said about your story, but not necessarily always responding to it because um, that won't necessarily always be a positive force. Sorry for, for no, uh, hogging the questions. I'm just, questions. Yeah, I'm just really interested in this. Um, this is in some ways a philosophical question for the, for the three of you um, because I was thinking about you know, fandom and like the Snyder, release the Snyder Cut and just this um, force, like in terms of our capacity, this force that fans can create to shift like massive corporate juggernauts. And I guess the question I keep asking myself is like why we, you know, we can see that in that sort of entertainment sphere, but often when it comes to activism or social movements, you know, um, some, you know a activating that same degree of kind of, um, you know, forcefulness is, is sometimes, you know, really difficult or like works in a different way. And I was just thinking like coming from, you know, your experience in the industry, have you got any thoughts about um, the difference between sort of those two areas and, and why we can get someone like, you know, Disney or something to kind of make a massive shift but we maybe can't get someone to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, Cap money? Capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just money, right? I mean, the, I, I'm not going to attribute motives to HBO, but they could see that there was a massive demand for that, for that cut. And they didn't care that it was a demand coming from an angry bunch of gamergators. They were going to take the money. So, I, you know, that just sort of says capitalism to me. It's not... Yeah, it's, it's like you're... The com it's about commercial demand potentially, and it's a ch it's, there's going to be some profit to be made off it, uh, you know, off of delivering that kind of content. I think. I guess well, well, then from the other end, in terms of like motivating people, like um, connecting with the audience in a way that that makes them you know take profound action, um, and you know why that's you know in terms of the the late night rants online, you know, that it's often the same process, you know, that you could employ in the political sphere. And I was just wondering in terms of us being human creatures, why we don't um, kind of move sideways. Yeah, from, I mean, I, I can point you to a number of examples of fan activism where I think the, the online space and that community has led to some pretty powerful stuff. Um, I just think that you can't kind of attribute altruistic motives to fans all the time. You know, it's kind of like the BTS fandom raised millions of dollars for Black Lives Matter causes, but they're also an incredibly problematic fandom when it comes to anti-Black racism. So it's it's sort of, it's one of those things where um, you, you can't sort of characterise fandom as one thing. It's a massive, messy group of people who care passionately about a bunch of different things at different times. And so it's very hard to sort of characterise it with one brush. Yeah. Um, I just want to throw, there's the fifth love language, I'm just going to briefly touch on this, and I would have loved to have queued the video to play, but maybe we can play it at some other point, uh, is acts of service. And I think Wellington Paranormal um, did a really good example of this with the police videos that you guys did around COVID with the cops doing the messaging. Like there's actually that ability to put your characters into public service, you know, charity government messaging, that kind of stuff, um, and w working for causes and all that sort of carry-on. So that was my fifth one, just to make sure that I wrapped up my five. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sasha, and thank you, Paul.
The A to Z of Publicity Workshop podcasts are proudly supported by New Zealand On Air's Industry Development Fund, the US Embassy, and Images and Sound. Music for the podcast was provided by Poddington Bear, Fakatoki by Lalena Feunati, and voiceover by Gemma Gracewood. Kia ora.